0: Amen. Well, good morning. It is great to be with you guys this morning. Uh, It's awesome to see you guys. It's great to know so many are joining us uh, from home as well. Uh, Really, really good. You know, before I jump into the message this morning, I thought, you know, it's the beginning of the year and and maybe it's kind of a good time to review how to grow spiritually here at the church. You might be new to the church, either coming here or online and checking us out and just wondering, okay, so like, what is your growth plan on some level? And, And so I thought I'd just kind of unpack a few of the basics of that. And one of that is personal worship. Brian just mentioned our app. If you get our free phone app, it's there. Just turn on the notifications, and Monday through Friday, when you wake up in the morning, you'll have your personal worship. It will be there waiting for you. And what we do is we take the passage of Scripture that we later talk about on Sunday. We typically divide it up into different segments, if you will, and we add supplemental verses and things that are related to it. You have study questions there that you can use. You can actually journal through the app online. So you can do that through the app or the website, and that's something. Another thing is just be here. Uh, Either be here on Sunday morning, so this is a weekly thing, or join us every week online. That's a great part of your spiritual life. That's where we take that passage that you've been in all week long and we unpack it together as a group, as a family, and we seek to apply it in our lives. Winston talked about community groups. That's a terrific place too. That's where you take what you're learning in the Bible and in life and you share it with other people who support you, who believe in you, who pray for you consistently, who preach the gospel to you when you need to hear it. And then, last piece of this part, we have a really great podcast. And I have nothing to do with it, so I can say it is amazing. It really is. Uh, Pastor Sam Casten Smith, and Mark Lantenswager, who is one of our elders, do a terrific job with this. Sam is seriously, not, and I'm not kidding, this is not hyperbole on my part, he is one of the most biblically insightful people I have ever known. Remarkably brilliant. And Mark is also remarkably brilliant. They've got a great rapport and a great relationship. They argue. It's funny. Like, it's enjoyable to listen to them come at things from different perspectives at times. And it's a great way to then sort of end your study of whatever it is. You've worked through it personally. We've talked about it on Sunday. You've had the opportunity to interact over it in your community group. And then that next Thursday out comes the, the, the podcast, which deals with this same passage of Scripture, but far more exhaustively. Take advantage of these things. Last thing, alpha. If you are a new believer or if you are not a believer, this is for you and it's for that kind of person in your life. Uh, Alpha is a safe place for you to come and and, and to then explore the big issues of life. We present it from a Christian perspective. We're a Christian church. It's what we believe. But here's our vow to you. Our vow to you is that we create a safe space after we've presented through a video that's really well done, the Christian perspective on whatever the topic of the day is. We let you speak your piece and not argue. And we respect the positions that you hold and where you're coming from. Uh, We create a safe environment in which relationships develop and people feel like, man, I I can actually tell people what my fears are, what my concerns are, what my skepticisms are, what my doubts are, where I'm coming from, and they listen. The Holy Spirit is the one who convinces. So we create an environment, and we create that for you, but we create that for the people in your life. So that's what we do. And what you do is you invite them in. So we started out for this past Thursday. It continues again this next Thursday. Uh, you can join us online. You can still join us even if you've missed the first one or the second one or the third one or the fourth one. Probably good if you hop in somewhere around third, fourth, maybe no later than fifth. But just join us and invite your friends to join us. It's super simple. You can do it from the app. Send them a little personal note and send them the link. It's really, really easy to do. So I just want to encourage you to do those things. And really just wanted to rehearse for you what that spiritual rhythm is on some level. So we're beginning the year together, and you can jump into it, okay? All right, so we are going to continue today with a study that we started last week, if you were with us. It's a study of the book of First Kings and part of the book of Second Kings. As Winston said, we are calling it Desiring the Kingdom. And I want to begin today with a question that we began last week with. It's really sort of the beginning of the year kind of a question for us, and the question has to do with strength and wisdom and resources and power and all of the challenges that we will face this year inevitably it's phrased like this will you begin this year trusting in your own strength and in your own wisdom and in your own resources and in your own power and here's the biblical language that we use to crush the heads of the serpents that are coming for you they're just they're coming for you i don't know how many they're going to be i don't know how long they're going to be i don't know how poisonous they're going to be but i know they're coming aren't they they just are So are you going to take them on? Your strength, your wisdom, your power, your resources, or instead, is this going to be the moment, is this going to be the year when you surrender to Jesus? You give your life to him. You throw up the white flag and you acknowledge what you and everyone else knows anyway, which is I can't deal with all these things. I don't have that wisdom. I don't have that strength. I don't have that power. I don't have that... Amount of resources, like, I can't do all of this, but, but he can. Guys, he is the one, as we talked about last week, who crushes the head of the serpent, whom the Bible gives a name. He's a person. His name is Satan. And it gives us power over our serpents. And those two things are not unrelated. We saw that, you know, we saw that all of human misery, all of human conflict, all of the human undoneness, if you will, all sickness, all disease, death itself, all of our strife, all of our angst, all of our depression, all of our concerns and cares and worries and problems, all of these things trace their roots all the way back to that moment in the garden when our first parents in whom all of us resided in that moment succumbed to the lie of the evil one. And what is the lie of the serpent? The lie of the serpent is God's holding out on you. The lie of the serpent is that God is a taker and not a giver. Like, he needs things. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. God's withholding from you, and he designs his commands, and he places them in your life to keep you from life, to keep good things from you, as opposed to keeping destruction from you, as opposed to keeping death from you, as opposed to keeping addiction from you. Our God is good. His commands are good. They're made to cultivate life. But the evil one slithers in, and notwithstanding all that the Lord God has done, notwithstanding what reason itself tells us, look, we've all believed the lie. And all of our strife and all of our issues trace our way back to that moment. That is the moment of greatest darkness. That is like the moment of greatest despair. Like that is the moment of greatest hopelessness. Just try to embody Adam and Eve in that moment as they realize crushingly that they've not only ruined themselves, but they've ruined the entirety of humanity. And by the way, look around. The evidence squares with that statement. And yet it's in that moment in which the whole of humanity, them, me, you, us, We're least deserving of this. God steps in because this is his heart. And he says, okay, guys, I'm going to introduce light into the darkness. I'm going to bring hope into the midst of this despairing moment. I am going to promise you Jesus. And part of what the Bible is doing from that third chapter in the Bible, like, you know, page two or three, all the way to the New Testament, it is tracing the bloodline of the one who is the seed of the woman who will do what? Crush the head of the serpent. And give us power in regard to ours. And what you find, and it's fascinating, is as you make your way through the stories of the lives of the people who find themselves in that bloodline that terminates, that ends in Jesus, that's all pointing toward Jesus, is you find stories of these people. And what are they doing? Well, figuratively speaking, they're facing serpents. And they're defeating serpents. And they're doing it by the power of God. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Beautiful, amazing, incredible pictures of the one that all of their lives, genealogically and spiritually, will in the end result in. You find it all sprinkled in this bloodline. And the reason that I'm bringing that up at the beginning of a study on 1 Kings is because you find that in the bloodline of David. He's the first person mentioned in 1 Kings. You find it in his life and you find it in Solomon's life. You see it in both, in David's, by the way is by far the more vivid and famous. You know, if you think about it, it is one of the most famous stories ever told about any person that has ever lived. It's the story of David and Goliath. You've heard of the story of David and Goliath. I mean, like, even if you're not a Christian, probably at least, you know something about the story of David and Goliath. You've heard about how Davids have defeated their Goliaths. What does that mean? It means that the guy who's, you know, the little guy, he's the under-resourced guy, he's the guy who looks like he has no shot up against the great giant Goliath, somehow defeats... Goliath, we all kind of have that at least rudimentary understanding of this story because it's so famous, but guys, the story is so much more than that. It's not a story about David and Goliath. It's not a story about the Israelites and the Philistines. It's not a story about them ultimately. It's a story about Jesus, about the serpent, about me and about you and your serpents and mine. It's beautiful. You find the story in 1 Samuel 17. If you go all the way back to that moment in history, King Saul, who is the first king of Israel, is the king on the throne of Israel at that particular moment. David comes later. David, at this point in the story, is about 17 years old. That's it. He's not even old enough to fight in the battles and to fight in the army of Israel, and we know that because the Israelites are in the Valley of Elah with King Saul and all of his army squared off against the dreaded Philistines. And three of David's older brothers, his three oldest, are in the army of Saul, drawn up in the battle lines. David's at home. And what is he doing? Because it's actually significant. It's a detail and it's all in the details. He's shepherding the sheep of his dad. He's out in his father's field working with the sheep. He's got a staff in his hand. You know, he's got the sling. Have you ever seen the slings? It's fascinating. We went to Israel and one of our guides had one of these slings. Like it's like these two leather straps with like a pouch on the end and you put a stone in it and they're long and he would get out there and, you know, like just to give us an image of how far you can throw these things and the kind of velocity with which it would go. Well, these shepherds, these guys like David who sat out there, you know, knocking beer cans down or something, or maybe it was Coke cans. He's a psalmist. You know, like you get the idea, like he's just, you know, killing rabbits with that. They're deadly accurate with these things. That's where David's at. Meanwhile, Saul, David's three oldest brothers, all the rest of the armies of Israel are located in the Valley of Elah. And I want to show you a picture of the Elah Valley. You can kind of see it here. So whenever we go to Israel, we go to the Valley of Elah. This is it. It kind of runs through here. You see the road here. And what you have is you have Saul's encampment up here on the hills on on the left side of the picture, if you will, and then you have the Philistines encampment over here on the right side of the picture, if you will, and you've got this broad, flat valley in between that's really probably close to a mile long. It's hard to see uh, that distance. What you can't see is that along the base of these hills, and it runs right under the street right here, is a little brook. And it's actually not a brook. It's, it's a weighty, and I, I realize that means nothing to you. So, what it is, is it's a dry river. It runs with water in the rainy season, but otherwise it's dry. So, I've been there five times. I've walked down into the brook. And it's like no water there. I mean, a little bit of water. I mean, you don't have to take your shoes off. I mean, you're just walking around, you know, looking for rocks. You get the idea? That's it. But the point is that if you're part of the Israelite army and you're up there on that side of the hill and you're going to go down into the valley and you're going to face off against the Philistines, you've got to walk down the hill, walk through the brook, up onto the valley, and then there's the scene of the battle. All right, well, these guys are squared off. One army against the other. And every day for 40 days the great champion of the Philistines, marches together with all of his soldiers behind him. He marches across the valley up to the brook and all the Israelites are up on the hill and he does the same thing for 40 days. He defies the armies of God. And he defies God himself and he offers a proxy war. What does that mean? It means that he marches over to the Israelites and says, okay, guys, so let's just think about this reasonably, reasonably for a minute. Let's, let's reason together. If all of my guys fight all of you guys, gonna be a lot of widows in Israel and in the Philistine lands. Can we agree on that? A lot of fatherless kids, a lot of mothers mourning their sons. Like a lot of us are gonna die and a lot of you are gonna die and somebody's gonna win in the end and then whoever wins, you know, you become the servants of the winner. Why are we doing that? Why don't we do this instead? Why don't you guys choose one guy? And that one guy is going to represent all of you in the whole of your nation. That guy will come out and he'll fight against me and I'll represent all of us in the whole of our nation. And whoever wins, wins on behalf of all of the people. So in other words, if your guy defeats me, fat chance, but anyway, if your guy defeats me, then we will all agree to be your servants. But if I defeat him, and I'm feeling pretty good about that, Then you guys will be our servants. What do you think? Day after day, day after day, day after day, for 40 days. But it seems like a reasonable offer until you read the description of Goliath. And to see what's happening in this story, you have to read it carefully, you have to look at the details. So 1 Samuel 17, verse 4, it says, And there came from out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, here he comes, named Goliath of Gath, whose height, wait for it, was six cubits and a span. All right, so how, how tall is that? It's nine feet, nine inches tall. You're like, Tom, that's where you lose me. I'm out. That's crazy. It's ridiculous. It's nine feet, nine inches tall. Yeah. That's what it says. It's interesting. There's a textual variant in the text here. And so you have all of these different transcripts, manuscripts, from which we construct the English Bible. And some of the manuscripts at this point say that he was more or less about seven feet tall. All right, we can get our heads around that. You know, we we watch the NBA, we see guys about seven feet tall. We had a guy at our church here for a while who was six foot ten, you know. I mean, that's really, really tall... But 9 feet 9 is what the best texts say. You're like, well, Tom, do you think he was 9 feet 9? Do you think he was closer to 7 feet? I think he was 9 feet 9 because that's what the best texts say. There was actually a guy in the 16th century named John Middleton who was reported to be 9 foot 3 inches tall. And, you know, it's not like he was in the Barnum and Bailey Circus. He wasn't making money off of it. He was just freakishly tall. But the point is David's like this and Goliath's like this. In fact, everyone is like this except Saul. He's like this. And Goliath's like this. If you look at him, he's tall. If you lay him down like a snake, he's long. Look for the snake. He continues to be described with this. It said he had a helmet of bronze on his head. Okay, now why is that significant? Well, it's not in English. (laughs) But this wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew. And the same root for bronze is the same root for serpent. So now watch how many times you hear this word bronze. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. Okay, what it literally says is he was covered in scales. That's what it says. And it speaks of a scaly armor and it wasn't just like a couple of scales. He gives the weight of the scaly armor. He says, and the weight of this scaly coat of armor was 5,000 shekels of what? Bronze. There it is again. And so he's covered with 126 pounds of serpent-like scales. And he even had bronze greaves or armor on his legs. And a javelin of bronze, I mean, are you getting the point at this point? Slung between his shoulders. And so what color, by the way, is a copperhead snake? Because it's... Ah, oh, yes, the brave ones say it. That's right, it's bronze. It's not tricky. It's good. It's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'm throwing you softballs. It's bronze. These are very artistically created stories, guys. They're subtle and yet not unclear. The author is saying, look, there is one in the bloodline of Jesus. He is the Shepherd son of the Father. And there's a serpent out there, and he's big and he's bad. He's deadly. You know that because the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, which is 15 pounds. And a shield bearer went before him. So, not surprisingly, nobody in the army of Israel, including Saul, who was reputed to be the tallest man in the whole nation of Israel, wanted anything to do with this guy. Forty days, day after day, he comes out, he offers the proxy war, and we're told that all of the Israelite soldiers, like they didn't make it to the end of the speech each day, they would just, they would run, you see flee back to their tent for fear that Saul or somebody was going to go, hey, why don't you go do it? And they're like, eh, I think I'm going to take a pass on that, thanks. That doesn't sound like a good idea for me. Meanwhile, David is back tending the sheep of his dad. That is until his dad grows concerned about his three oldest sons that are up on the battlefront with Saul and says, look, here's what I want you to do, David. I want you to go and check out how my sons are doing. You're the shepherd's son of the father, that's me, and I'm going to send you from my land to that land... To check out the welfare of my kids. And David arrives in time for the daily rant. And he listens. And he realizes three things. One, Israel is faced with a serpent that it cannot defeat. Two, its only hope, therefore, is for someone to step up and defeat it. For the nation, and three, by the end of the speech, he's the only one still standing on the hill listening, because everybody else has left. And so, even though he's seventeen, he's not old enough to be in the army. He's just, you know, he just showed up to see his brothers. He's like, well, I got some time, you know. Like, I mean, I'm here anyway. I'll do it. Like, seriously, if none of you guys have faith for this, I have faith for this, and so I'll go do it. And they laugh at him, and they ridicule him, and they insult him. And, you know, we can hear it 3,000 years later. It's ridiculous. What, are you kidding me? His oldest brother is like, dude, go back to the sheep. What is your problem? This is crazy. King Saul gets wind that this person has said, hey, I'll do it. And everybody else, including him, has been running for the tent. So he's desperate. He brings David in and he's hoping that David will be, you know, and David's like, and he's like, oh, good grief. I thought that we might've had someone, (laughs) but it's you. And David's like, yeah, it's me. You know, I'm not going to do this, but the Lord is going to do this. He's just going to do it through me. He's persistent. He argues his case. And finally, King Saul, who's desperate, relents. Says, all right, fine. We've got no other options. Go. And he takes his shepherd's staff. He takes his sling and all of its deadly accuracy. He walks down the hill and he walks into the brook. Because he has to. And he gathers up five little stones and he puts them in his pouch And he walks up onto the valley floor where Goliath, with the whole Philistine army behind him, is waiting. And I want you to hear what he says. It's amazing. Verse 45, it says, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. Those are your weapons. And look, those are the weapons of the armies of this world. It's the weaponry with which man fights man. But I come to you with a different weapon. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day. This day, he says, the Lord will deliver you, big guy, into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. Hang on. To whom do your battles belong? I mean, really, like, I mean, as you consider your serpents, as you're looking at your challenges, are they yours or are they the Lord's? And I think in here we find a clue as to how to figure it out. It's how we fight. God's people fight with different weapons. We don't take up the weaponry of the world and then use it against them. We fight on our knees. We fight with the power of the gospel. We fight by laying our lives down for the sake of our enemies. We fight with those who have a hope for a life beyond this life. We fight as those who understand that even if they take our lives, we get them back. So what have they taken really and what do we fear? We don't fight with slander. We don't fight with ridicule. We don't get just as angry and go after with the same devices. We're manifestly different and in being manifestly different, what do we declare? (laughs) That there is a God in our midst. And that's the point. David's like, hey, you know, you come against me with all this stuff. All right, so I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. It's amazing. He says, I want this whole assembly to know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. When will we, the church, learn that lesson? For the battle is the Lord's, and he We'll give you into our hand. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David in battle, David, it says, ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And as he's running, the idea is David put his hand into his bag and he took out a stone and he put it in the sling that he's been, you know, knocking down rabbits and beer cans with for years. And he slung it and struck the Philistine where? On his forehead. And what does it do? It crushes the head of the serpent. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So the shepherd son of the father, sent by the father from the land of the father to the land where his children are residing in that moment, who suffers the ridicule and the insults and the laughter and the scorn of his brothers when he arrives, steps out himself upon the battlefield as the representative of the whole of God's people and crushes the head of the serpent. And then it's amazing. He takes Goliath's sword out of his dead hand and hacks his head off. And then he grabs the head and just raises that dude up in the air. And listen, if you have any testosterone in your body at all, and I know as you get older, it gets lesser and that's, thus all the commercials, but it's a medication for that. All right. Like if there's any at all, it's like, whoa! like that is the moment. It's amazing. If you like Braveheart, forget that. Lord of the Rings, child's play. Gladiator, that's pretty cool, right? But but think about that. There it is. (laughs) Incredible. The Philistines are like, "What, what just happened? What do the Israelites do? Because it's instructive. And here's why it's instructive. It's instructive because it's instinctive. They blow the battle horns, man. They they look upon the deliverance that their deliverer has just done like just the God like has just shown up and then they look at their enemies and they blow the battle horns and all of these guys who had been fleeing for their tents come rushing down the hill and through the brook and they chase these guys, the Philistines, all the way home, forgive me, but hacking them down left and right and leaving their bodies strewn all over the valley and all over the streets all the way back to Philistia. It's instructive because it's instinctive. In other words, when you see, I mean really see, what your champion has really done, you don't sit around. You don't go, hey, you know what, you guys go do that. I'll, you know, report back later. Like, not a few of these guys, not some of these guys, not most of these guys, every single one ran and charged the battlefield that was so evidently before them. It's instructive because it's instinctive. So if the instinct isn't there, what's wrong? Something to think about. David, who is in the bloodline of Jesus as a picture of Jesus, defeats this serpent, Goliath, on behalf of God's people, and he frees them from slavery. Solomon, less dramatically, does effectively the same thing. You open the book of First and Second Kings, and what do you find? You find Solomon, and Solomon is facing a what? A serpent. It's his older brother, Adonijah. God has said, Solomon, you will be the king after your father David dies. <laughs> Adonijah goes, don't miss this, to the serpent's stone, proclaims himself the king, and what that will require is for him to then put Solomon to death, thus ending the bloodline of Jesus, which has not yet consummated the birth of the Christ. There's a lot at play. It's another thing we see in Israel. We see the serpent stone. So this is it. When you go to the what used to be the household of Caiaphas in Jerusalem, uh, you have the opportunity to go up on this overlook. This, it's actually like the roof of a house and, or a building, and you're able to go up there and look to the east. Bethlehem is actually up the hill here. But this is the head of the serpent, if you can see it. It's the shape of the head, and then you see his body which runs all the way down across this ridge, off the picture, and all the way back, and you've got a stripe down the center, you see. It's remarkable. He's a striped serpent. You can go there right now and look at it. I mean, you'll have to quarantine for 14 days when you arrive in Israel, so you'll need to to factor that into your travel plans, but hopefully that will end. But that brings me back to the question. What's the question? Well, it's, are you going to begin this year trusting in you to defeat your serpents? Or are you going to surrender to him and trust in him? Because, guys, this is his job. It's what he and he alone can do. So that takes me to this rock. So for the better part of the last year, I've had this rock sitting on my desk, which has probably caused confusion for people. You know, like they come in and they can I don't use it as a paperweight, and even then it would be sort of awkward. I mean, it's not much of a weight. So I've just got like this random rock sitting on my desk. Nobody has said anything, which I thought was, you know, considerate and kind, but maybe I can explain it and clear my reputation for being strange-ish. It looks like a rock you can get out of your yard, but it's a rock that I got out of the brook, the brook in the Valley of Elah. You know, I've been there five times. Every time I go, I return with a bag of rocks. And before you report me to the Israeli Antiquity Society, they know that I do this. Everybody does this. You know, they go through your luggage at the airport. When you leave, they're like, bag of rocks, you know. Got that from the Valley of Elah. Okay, all right, you know, zip this up a minute. The land is made of rocks. If the Lord does not return for another thousand years and you're still around, you can go and get a rock even then, all right? But I pick up these rocks, I bring them home with me, and then from time to time when somebody is going through a difficult season of time, I give them a rock. Not from my yard, although you wouldn't know, would you? But from there. And I thought, you know, I think maybe I need a rock. So I just put it on my desk. And it doesn't remind me of David. He's not big enough. He's not impressive enough. He's not strong enough. He's not great enough. David fails. You know his story. Oh, miserably. Look where he ends in the book of 1 and 2 Kings. You see him in those first two chapters of 1 Kings. Inadequate for the task. Diminished just like all of us either are or will be. Now, the battle is the Lord's, and the champion is Jesus. He is the true Shepherd son of the true father, sent from heaven to earth for the welfare of the father's kids. He is the one who faced the derision and the scorn and the laughter of his brothers. And he is the one who put us behind him and went forward on his own. And on the cross, suffering and dying to cure the sting of the serpent and rising from the dead to cure its effect, which is death. He's a deadly serpent. He offers freedom from the serpent. He has crushed his head. He empowers us to face our serpents. And in the end, he promises us a world in which there will be no serpents. And I'm looking forward to that. I really am. So I'm going to end with two questions. And the first one is probably kind of obvious. It's just, have you recognized your need for Jesus? Maybe the better question is, have you surrendered to Jesus? Or are you just going, no, 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 I got this one this year, you know, just like you had it last year, right? Yeah, me too. Have you recognized that there is one who forgives sin, who has conquered death, who freely offers life to you? Have you recognized your need for Jesus and just said, you know what, Lord, here I am. Forgive me and fill me with your spirit. And let me follow after you day by day. You are my shepherd. But then the second question, I hope too is obvious. Are you just standing on the sidelines of the spiritual battle that is so obviously before you or are you engaged in it because it's instinctive? When you see your Savior on the cross, when you recognize the reality of the empty tomb, when you realize what God has deigned to do for you through Jesus and the power of God, deployed by him for you, in you, through you, you don't go back to the tent. You don't stand around and go, why don't you guys go and let me know how it goes. You charge the hell, man. You run through the brook, and you go after the Philistines, not to kill them in the roads, <laughs> but to fight for them, to lay your life down for them as Jesus has laid his life down for you. Look, you know, I, this is not an Alpha message. I'm not trying to, you know, get a bunch of people to go to Alpha, honestly. But I think it's a good illustration, and I want you to examine yourself. And have, I, have you invited one person to Alpha? One. One. Not trying to make you guilty. I'm trying to say, you know what? It's instructive because it's instinctive. And the truth of the matter is, that is as easy as it gets in terms of pursuing people and bringing them life. So either you don't know Jesus or something's happened in between then and now that is that has crusted over your heart, that has made it insensitive to what the Lord is doing, that has fogged your vision of the cross and of who he is and of how beautiful he is and of all that he's done and of all that he offers to me and to you. And you need, again, to bring yourself to Jesus and repent of that and be free with a fresh vision of Christ, that it might be instinctive. And that's what he offers It's the second chance. It's the hundred and second chance. It's the 3,000th and second chance. It's the 10 millionth and second. He is the God of the second chances, and he's calling you out of malaise and into joyful, powerful, resilient, purposeful life. And he's saying the same thing to me. I told Winston, I said, I'm preaching to myself today, and maybe it will help someone else. Maybe it will help someone else. So, today we have the privilege of coming to the table, which in many ways is exactly what that's about. It's an opportunity to do that, to take some time with the Lord and before you take communion to say, Lord, renew my heart. It's grown hard. (laughs) There's a sin in my life and I need to get rid of it. So here, I I lay it down before you and I, I turn from it and walk away from it toward your table. There's a cynicism that's developed in me that's made me insensitive to you and to everything else and maybe to everyone else. It's been a tough go for everyone, really, and it beats you down. God, lift me up. Renew my heart. Repurpose my life. Reset my vision. Let me see my Savior physically represented It's like a stone, but sacred and the elements of this meal. And if you're following along at home and you're planning to take communion with us at home, then let me speak to you for a minute because it's a little bit different. See, here we have the elements and we've secured them. A sacrament is a sacred thing. And what that means is that we have to use the elements actually prescribed. We don't baptize people and, you know, Gatorade or something. You know, like we, we use water. Why? Because it's a sacred thing we're doing and the elements are prescribed. Bread and fruit of the vine, of the grape, whether that's wine or whether it's grape juice of some kind, are necessary to do this if you're going to do this at home. But otherwise, guys, take a moment with the Lord in this. Cry out to Him from whatever state your heart is in in this moment, and ask Him to soften your heart and to renew your heart. Or if you're in a great place, rejoice with the Lord that that's where you're at. It's awesome. But I'm praying that God will take us there. And then, when you're ready, come forward joyfully to receive these elements. But only come forward if you have already placed your faith in this Savior. And the one who went forward for you on the cross onto the battlefield suffered and died and rose again from the dead. If he is your Savior, this table is for you. Otherwise, please just consider that there he is, and he offers the same life to you. The Apostle Paul says this, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. There it is, the element. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after, cup, after supper, he took the cup full of wine is the idea, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray together and then take some time. And when you're ready, if you can come from the outside of the room, you can come to the table. Our elders will give these things to you. They've got gloves and it's all sanitary and so forth. And then just come back in through the center and back to your seats, okay? And our, we'll release you row by row as we go. Father, we, we praise you that we have a champion. But not only will he overcome, he has. The fate of the serpent is sealed. And our champion lives within us. Holy Spirit, rise up within us and give us a fresh sight of our Lord. Let us see the one who suffered on a cross for us. Let us see the one who laid down his life for us, Let us see the one who's defeated death for us. Let us see the one who reigns on the throne and ever lives to make intercession. That is to say to plead on behalf of us to the Father. Let us see the one who no matter where we're at, no matter what we've done, no matter what we've said, no matter how big of a failure we have made, welcomes us with open arms justice has been affected it's just been affected on him which means we're free let us get over ourselves our care for our reputation and care for him the way that he has cared for us and let us make him known let us fight for our family and for our workplace and for our schools and for our community and for our city and for our country Let us fight for the world, for it. Taking people captive by the gospel of Jesus. Do that miraculous work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.